You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome students. This is lesson five of the class on nature and grace. And in this class, we're going to see how the new law of Christ should be lived as a preparation for discussing the nature of grace itself, why we need grace, the definitions of grace, and the divisions into the principal kinds. In the last class, we talked about the law. And we discovered that the old law was a necessary stage in the preparation for the salvation of the human race because it remedied for the ignorance of the original sin. It did this by preparing a community from which the Messiah would be born. The principal means by which this was done was by coupling God as the author of nature with God as the Father as the one God of Jesus Christ. The new law of Christ, which is brought to us by Christ himself, is principally the grace of the Holy Spirit. That's its primary element. But its secondary element, which is no less important for the experience of the grace of the Holy Spirit, is the actions which dispose us to conversion and which implement a conversion already attained. The traditional terminology for this is actions which are dispositive to the grace of the Holy Spirit and actions which lead a person to carry out the grace of the Holy Spirit. In the old law, people were imperfect with regard to the end. They were like children, spiritually speaking. In the new law, the people are perfect with respect to the end. And as a result, the manner of teaching with respect to the precepts of the old law, which traditionally are assigned as 600 negative and 600 positive, differs from the manner of precepts in the new law, just as teaching children and teaching adults differs. In St. Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 3, verse 14, we read that the old law is like a tutor whereas the new law is a law of perfection because it's a law of charity. There is a unity between the two, which is the unity of faith. In the old law, faith tells what is going to happen. In the new law, faith tells what has already happened. And the precepts of each of the laws is expressed according to the kinds of virtues that the people live in them. The imperfect are drawn to a different way to virtue than the perfect are. The imperfect are generally drawn, now we mean by imperfect, spiritually children, to virtue by threats of punishment and temporal promises, whereas the perfect are brought to this by spiritual promises. An analogy could be made here, as is made in Aristotle, between what is called the continent man and the temperate man. The continent man is one who controls himself with respect to pleasure, but does so without any interior integrity, and therefore it would be easy for him to fall into sin. In other words, he's still interiorly tempted very strongly to sins. Whereas the temperate man is the one who experiences an interior unity so that he not only does what's right, but enjoys it. The continent man really doesn't enjoy it. And what characterizes the difference between the two is spontaneity. The old law encourages men to practice virtue as a continent man would be encouraged, someone who does the deeds but looks on them as an exterior imposition to him. The new law, because of the grace of the Holy Spirit in men's hearts, is a law of love and therefore moves man to act from love of virtue and from God himself. The traditional way of putting this is that the old law restrains the hand 
whereas the new law restrains both the heart and the hand. Now, the new law supplies for what is lacking in the old. As to the end, the new law makes a person actually virtuous because it gives him the grace of the Holy Spirit. As to the precepts of the old law, these are fulfilled in Christ, both by his actions and by his teaching. Jesus was born under the dispensation of the old law. He did all that was required in the temple and thus fulfills it in the presentation of the temple and in his passion. As to his teaching, Christ interprets the old law in its authentic sense. The way the Pope puts this is that Jesus recalls to the man in the state of original sin what the man in the state of original justice was like. And as a result, the precepts are very different in the old and new law, and the burden of living it is very different. There's a question St. Thomas asks as to which is more difficult, the old law or the new law. Now, the old law was more difficult with respect to its exterior precepts because it had many. Why was this? Because the people were immature and they did not yet have the Holy Spirit. In the sense that the rules were so many, the old law was therefore more burdensome. But the new law has to do with internal works as well as external ones. Though its exterior precepts are few compared to the old law, those things that are directly against the love of God, its observance is more difficult because it presumes that the people will act who observe its precepts from an interior and spontaneous joy lived through grace. In this sense, the new law is more burdensome because for a person without love, it's almost impossible to live. It's extremely burdensome because its actions presume that a person is acting from a contemplative interior union with God and therefore spontaneously, fully, and completely. There are works commanded by the new law, but those works are those that are expressive of charity or lead to charity. So the new law is, it's true, a law of freedom, but not a freedom which is license, and not a freedom in the sense that there are no works commanded. The new law, since it's primarily the grace of the Holy Spirit, is shown in faith working through love. The external works that are commanded are those which lead to grace, like the sacraments, or to those that result from the inner stirrings of grace. The kingdom of God is primarily interior, but in the new law of Christ, all exterior actions which do not correspond to this interior state, peace, justice, and spiritual joy, are forbidden. As a result, it's necessary to live the new law in the spontaneity of love, as a son who knows what his father is about, not as a slave who looks on things as merely matters of exterior constraint. The Catechism expresses this quite well in paragraph 1972. The new law is called a law of love because it makes us act out of love infused by the Holy Spirit rather than from fear. A law of grace, because it confers the strength of grace to act by means of faith and the sacraments. A law of freedom, because it sets us free from the ritual and juridical observances of the old law, inclines us to act, and this is the key word, spontaneously by the prompting of charity, and finally lets us pass from the condition of a servant who does not know what his master is doing to that of a friend. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you, or even to the status of a son and an heir. Now, when Jesus comes, the only precepts he directly abrogates are completely eradicating the ceremonial precepts of the old law because they're realized in himself. The juridical precepts, insofar as they apply to Israel, he also eradicates. 
but he replaces them with other juridical precepts which have to do more with this interior law. And Jesus in no sense changes the moral precepts of the old law. You remember there was a rich young man who came to Christ and asked him what he had to do to inherit eternal life. And what does Jesus respond? He says, what do you read in the law? He doesn't change this. And so the rich young man speaks about the precepts, honor your father and your mother, you shall not steal, you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus says, you are right, do this and you shall live. But because the new law is a law of the Spirit, it involves not only giving up things that are evil, but Jesus also adds to the new law certain recommendations about how to live the good. Since we suffer from the weakness of concupiscence, in order for us to preserve a grace-filled mind, it's also necessary for us, in some cases, according to our state in life, to give up even legitimate goods because we have a weakness in their respect. And you remember from a previous class that those legitimate goods touch on the three famous lusts or concupiscences. Remember what they are now? The first is the lust of the flesh that has to do with sexuality. The second is the lust of the eyes that has to do with avarice through material possessions and possessiveness. And the third is the pride of life that has to do with setting yourself above God. Jesus adds to the commandments in the old law counsels or recommendations of perfection in the new law on how to live this law of the Spirit. You remember with the rich young man, Jesus says, do this and you will live. And then he says, if you will be perfect, there is one more thing you must do. Go and sell what you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. In this, he is providing a remedy for the lust of the eyes by recommending poverty. The counsel of chastity provides a remedy for the lust of the flesh. And the counsel of obedience provides a remedy for the pride of life. All are called to live these counsels according to their state of life, and there are some who are called to live them always in everything because they profess these counsels by public vows, and those are religious. You remember the rich young man went away sad because he had many possessions, and Jesus says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to pass through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter heaven. And then the disciples are scandalized, and they said, well, if this is true, who can be saved? And he says, for men this is impossible, but not for God. For grace, all things are possible. And in another place, when he talks about marriage, he says, let him who can take this teaching take it. In other words, those who are called to live this by a fixed way of life are certain people to whom God gives a special gift. Everyone's called to live a control of these in some things. So the Catechism adds, besides its precepts, 1973, the new law also includes the evangelical councils, called councils because they're recommended by Christ, not precepts, and called evangelical because they're found in the gospel, the law of the gospel. The traditional distinction between God's commandments and the evangelical councils is drawn in relation to charity, the perfection of Christian life. The precepts are intended to remove whatever is incompatible with charity. The aim of the councils is to remove whatever might hinder the development of charity, even if it's not contrary to it. The evangelical councils manifest the living fullness of charity, which is never satisfied with not giving more. And then concerning who's required to keep the councils, the Catechism ends this whole section by quoting from St. Francis de Sales. God does not want each person to keep all the counsels, but only those appropriate to the diversity of persons, times, opportunities, and strengths as charity requires. For it is charity as queen of all virtues, all commandments, all counsels, and in short of all laws and of all Christian actions that gives to all of them their rank, 
order, time, and value. Okay, now that we've established the fact that the new law of Christ involves charity and therefore involves communion with God and therefore involves grace, the next subject we have to take up then is what is grace? Because this class, in a certain sense, has been building up to this. Now first, let me make a distinction for you between two kinds of grace and address each one. Now this is a little premature because I really should be waiting to make this distinction until later, but I think it will help you to understand what I want to explain about the necessity of grace if you can see these two kinds. And I'm going to make this distinction again. I just want to do it one time here so that I can help you to see what is involved in all the questions which are very deep and very detailed concerning the necessity of grace. So, we have what's called the grace which makes pleasing and the grace freely given. The grace which makes pleasing also in one translation is referred to as grace as disposition. This is an important point here. Grace as disposition. Because grace truly, according to Catholic doctrine, involves a quality in the soul. This grace as disposition, or grace freely given, is what truly interiorly transforms us to be like God. The grace freely given is not given for us. The grace freely given is given for others. And it is what is traditionally referred to as charismatic grace. It's possible for a person to exercise a charismatic grace without being in the state of grace themselves. Just as a prelude to the discussion, some charismatic graces, they're ordinary ones in the church, like the ability of the priest to consecrate at Mass or to forgive sins. And then there are extraordinary charisms like tongues and healing and prophecy. The grace's disposition is what is traditionally referred to as sanctifying grace. And both of these graces cannot be had without God's interior aid inspiring us to a good intention. But this is especially true of the grace's disposition. God's interior aid inspiring us to a good intention is what is traditionally referred to as actual grace. It's not a quality in us. It's not a change within us. It's not a plus added to our nature. It's God rather interiorly helping us to live what we have already received. Now, before we come to define grace, which is what I'm going to do for you for the end of this lecture, first we have to discuss its necessity. Why on earth is grace necessary? And this relates to the famous questions of Pelagianism and Lutheranism. In the Summa, when St. Thomas takes up this question, the first thing he asks is, is grace necessary to know truth? Now, all truth, even the truth we can know by nature, is taught to us by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit inspires us with the light which comes from God himself. Just as God moves everything to its own realization by nature, so God moves us even to know the truths that we can know by reason. But in order for human beings to know something that go beyond the sensible realities in themselves, it's necessary for us to receive a stronger light than merely the light of reason. And this is the light of faith or the light of prophecy. For us to know about the Trinity, for us to know about the Incarnation, for us to know about the divine maternity of Mary, the sacraments, the Church, and the infallibility, it is necessary that we receive a further instruction by the Holy Spirit than the one that we receive where the Holy Spirit teaches us about natural truths. And therefore, we have to receive a further enlightenment by the Holy Spirit. And it's this sort of truth 
which grace is necessary to know because it involves supernatural things. It involves the inner nature of God himself. Not only is grace necessary for knowing the truth, but it's also necessary for willing and doing the good. Now, in the state of original justice, because of their integrity, Adam and Eve could have done the goods which were proportionate to their nature without sanctifying grace. In other words, the interior quality that was given to them was not given to them in order that they could practice what we would call natural or acquired virtues of prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. But to practice infused virtues, supernatural virtues of prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude, and also to live the life of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, sanctifying grace was necessary. In both states, actual grace is necessary to live whatever virtuous life is lived. It's necessary to live the acquired virtues for Adam and Eve because they couldn't persevere in the state of original justice without it. And it's necessary for us to encourage us to a good intention to states of healing. Is it possible for man to love God above all things without grace? Well, again, here we have to make a distinction between the state of integral and fallen nature. Both men and angels, and indeed the whole good of the universe, are called to love God above all things as the beginning and end of the world by nature. As a result, in the state of his integrity, Adam could do this by his own nature, and grace was not necessary for him. Adam could do this without the additional aid of a gratuitous gift added to his nature. He could not do this again without actual grace, with God internally assisting him and moving him along. But this is not the same as the love, the special love of God, to which the human race is called. Remember, it's the kind of love of God which everything is called to. Rather, the human race is called to know God as the known in the knower and the loved in the lover. Another way to put this is, the human race is called to know God as an object of blessedness and communion. It's called to a special love of God. It's called to fellowship with God. It's called to be elevated to actually participate in the divine nature itself, which is over and above just loving God as the beginning and end of the world, above all things. In order to experience this communion, in both fallen and redeemed nature, integral and fallen nature, sanctifying grace is necessary because this goes over and above what we are able to do on our own. In the state of fallen nature, sanctifying grace is also necessary just to raise us, to heal us to the place where Adam was at before the sin, to love God as the beginning and end of all things. Is it possible for us to merit eternal life without grace? Sanctifying grace's principal purpose is to make all of our actions proportionate to the vision of God. This is also religion's principal purpose. Therefore, no one can merit grace. No one can merit the beginning of conversion. Grace precedes merit, and grace causes merit. Even Jesus Christ did not merit the grace of the Incarnation, the grace of the hypostatic union. He did merit our redemption. He did merit giving us grace, but he didn't merit being the Son of God. What we do merit is by cooperating in the grace that is given us we receive the reward of eternal life. Now, this means that grace has to be given us in order for us to do our proportionate part in preparing ourselves for heaven. Now, since we have to receive God's aid in order to do our proportionate part in preparing ourselves for heaven, is it possible for us 
to receive grace against our wills. Well, not really. Some preparation for grace is necessary in order for us to receive sanctifying grace. So the next question St. Thomas asks is, is it possible for man to prepare himself for grace without grace? What he means here is actual grace without God interiorly inspiring him. And this is a reflection on the scripture text, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus has to draw him. So there has to be some kind of initial grace to encourage us to consent and to cooperate in grace. Remember, sanctifying grace is the principle of our good acts. God moves us to accept the gift of communion with him, however, through actual grace. Man must first be converted if he is to desire and experience communion with God, and that conversion is accomplished through God aiding and supporting him in turning to God. Actual grace is absolutely necessary then for a person to prepare themselves for the reception of sanctifying grace. And a person who hardens their heart is a person who refuses to accept actual grace. Is it possible for a person to rise from sin without the aid of grace? Now this was the Pelagian problem. The Pelagians believed that it was possible by your own strength to arise from sin. Since grace is the principle which supplies in the place of sin, a person who exists in the condition of mortal sin does not have any interior strength by which he is able to overcome either the stain of sin or the corruption of his nature or the debt of punishment which is due to sin. And as a result, from every single point here, grace is necessary to restore us to friendship with God. Is it possible for a person to refrain from sin without grace? Well, here we have to make a distinction again. Sin is a disorder of nature. In the state of integrity, it was possible for Adam, without sanctifying grace, to refrain from sin. It was not possible without actual grace. Remember, it was by failing to rely on actual grace that Adam committed the first sin. But in the state of fallen nature in which we exist, it is not possible for a man to avoid all mortal sins without the aid of grace. And in the state of fallen and redeemed nature in which we who are baptized live, you can avoid all mortal sins, but you cannot avoid all venial sins without the aid of grace. Actually, there was only one person who ever lived who never had, in the redeemed state, either a mortal or a venial sin, and that is the Blessed Virgin Mary. All the rest of us need grace in order to avoid even venial sin. Can one who has attained grace already do good and avoid sin by himself without the further assistance of grace? Now this was the Jansenist heresy. They taught that once you received grace, you were so filled with God that you could by your own power demand reward. This is simply not possible. Man needs God. We are given grace, communion with God, not to set us free from reliance on Him, but to make us more reliant on Him because we experience Him more within. Habitual grace, sanctifying grace, isn't given to us so we no longer need God's help. I mean, after all, the trees still need God's help and aid in order to grow and the leaves to fall. Habitual grace is given to us so that we can experience God's help in a deeper sense. And even the saints in heaven must be preserved in their motion from God to God by actual grace. And that's why we pray every day, and the saints even have to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The final question would be, is grace necessary to persevere in grace? 
Well, initially speaking, when a person receives grace in baptism, they receive the power to stand firm in grace. And they also receive the power to persevere in a right intention by resisting sorrow. But the fact that they actually persevere in this right intention throughout every stage of their life demands God's assistance. We do not merit perseverance. We rely on God to aid and support us in perseverance. In fact, Adam's great sin was in not relying on God to persevere in the state he was in. Bishop Sheen used to celebrate Mass every week for his perseverance in the priesthood. And there's a beautiful comment made by St. Thomas at the end of these questions. He says, what cannot be merited can always be prayed for. So every day it's necessary for us to pray for our own perseverance in grace. Grace gives us the quality, the support, the power to be able to do that. But the fact that we allow this power to influence us in each and every action that we perform until the end of our lives demands a further commitment to grace. Now, once we've decided on the necessity of grace, the next question is just what grace is. Grace is absolutely necessary for communion with God. And so, St. Thomas asks in the next question if grace is something in the soul. Does grace involve a true change in our inner nature? Now, this is an extremely important question for us today, partially as a result of the Protestant Reformation. Now, there have been agreements raised recently on the nature of justification, merit, and grace by the Lutherans and the Catholics. I must admit to you that I've read these articles of agreement and I find them very hard to understand. Certainly, traditionally speaking, Luther held that man in the state of grace was like a lump of dung covered by snow. He maintained that man was justified only exteriorly speaking. What does this mean? It means that man in the state of grace was like a criminal who comes into a court who is guilty of a capital crime and deserves punishment. The judge, instead of punishing him, just looks away. The man still remains a capital criminal worthy of death, but the judge simply chooses not to punish him. So therefore, there's no change in the criminal. Luther took the Augustinian phrase that man is at the same time just and a sinner, simul justus et peccator, to mean we were really sinners but considered just, at the same time just and a sinner. Catholicism takes this text, the same quotation from St. Augustine, to mean that we're really made right but because we don't have the preternatural gifts given back to us, we still have a tendency, concupiscence, but not an inexorable tendency, a tendency that cannot be remedied toward sin. The Catholic Church maintains that ontologically man is made just by grace because of the presence of the Holy Spirit within him, but he does not have the spontaneity of grace given back to him. In other words, his character is not totally integrated. Now he has to discover this integration in struggle. In Luther's thought, because everybody was still a sinner, there were no degrees of holiness because God merely overlooked the fact that we were garbage. There was no mystical life of prayer. Everybody was equally the same. Mary was equally a sinner with me or with somebody else. There were no degrees in heaven, you could say. The Catholic Church, on the other hand, looks on grace as the fruit of love. Now, there's a big difference between human love and divine love, but they both involve response to something which is within the beloved. In other words, it's not just overlooking evil. When we use the word grace, St. Thomas says, we speak 
of the word grace, its common usage is three senses. First, grace means the love of someone for someone else. As when we say someone enjoys the king's grace or the king's favor, this means that the king is well disposed toward him. The second thing we mean by grace is the gift which is given as a result of that love. I confer this grace, I confer this favor on you. The third meaning of the word is the response of the one who has received the gift from love of thanks for the grace received. Now, we don't have this in our language too easily. We talk about saying grace before meals, but in Spanish or in Italian, it's very easy to see this because the word for thanks is gracias or grazie. In other words, it's grace. Sense two, the gift given, depends on sense one. Why on earth would somebody give a person a gift except because they love them? And sense three depends on sense one and two. When someone loves me and bestows a gift on me, then I respond with gratitude. In the last two senses, grace can mean something set up in the soul, in the fact that grace is a gift given and a response to this gift. However, there's a difference between the gift given in human love and the gift given in divine love, and so the difference between God's love and man's love is found in the first sense. Man's love always finds the good already present in a thing, a pre-existing goodness, and therefore gives love as a result of that. God's love, on the other hand, is very different. When he wills good to a creature, his will creates the good in the creature. Not every good God creates in the creature is equal to himself. It's not a share in his nature. The difference of good depends on the kind of difference of love that God has for his creatures, because God loves everything. The first good God gives to every creature as the fruit of his love is being. The fact the existence of every creature depends on the divine love. If God ceased to love it, it would cease to exist. But toward us, who are reasoning beings, God exercises a gift of love over and above just existing. He gives us a special love, what St. Thomas calls a love simply speaking, because he not only gives us the ability to participate in good by existing, but he gives us the ability to participate in the good, which is he himself. He communicates himself in his own nature to men and angels by giving them the gift of grace. And as a result, in man, grace is a true elevation of his nature. It's a plus added to his nature. It's not a substantial change in us. I mean, we're not corrupted and changed into God. What God does is elevate us to a relationship, a friendship with Him, of equality with Him, by adding a quality to our souls which enables us to live as God lives, to know as God knows, and to love as God loves. No one can arrive at God as the ultimate end without this quality, and therefore it's not possible for a human soul to experience true, full life without this quality. God creates the soul as its efficient cause because he keeps it in existence. The soul is the life of the body as the form of the body, but God is the life of the soul, the quality by which the soul is given a good quality of life, which means a grace-filled life. God gives that quality by the elevation of the soul to sanctifying grace. So, grace is truly a qualitative participation in the very divine life of God himself. In order for us to participate in this quality, it is necessary for us to be prepared to do this. And this participation is 
sanctifying grace itself. Now, before I go on, I want to again formally distinguish between the two principal kinds of grace that we received then. The first has to do with the true share in God's nature. This is a change within us. It is called equality, and it gives true life to our souls. In other words, it makes us pleasing to God. When He loves us, He changes us to be one like Himself. This is sanctifying grace, and it has three principal qualities about it or attributes. The first is from Ephesians 1, 6. It truly makes us pleasing to God. It is our justification. Our justification consists in being made like God through the action of the Holy Spirit. The second from Romans 11.6 is that it is freely given. And the third characteristic is that it's without prior merit. No one, remember, merits grace. We merit heaven by allowing grace to influence our souls, but no one merits grace. This is sanctifying grace, which could be defined as a created supernatural gift. Why created? Because we receive it in a created way, even though it's a participation in God's own life. A true change in the disposition of our being, infused by God, which permanently inheres in our soul and allows us to participate in divine nature. Corresponding to sanctifying grace is what we could call actual grace, where God interiorly and directly enlightens the understanding and strengthens the will. This actual grace either comes before conversion or supports us in our conversion, but it's also necessary to move and quicken us in this divine way. Now, the second major kind of grace, which is described in the New Testament, shares in two characteristics, but not the third one of sanctifying grace. It is truly freely given, and it is also without prior merit. But it does not, in itself, make us pleasing to God. This grace is given to make others pleasing to God, to help in their conversion. As a result, it's possible to have this second kind of grace, also referred to as charismatic grace, without being personally holy in oneself. And you know, it's sad sometimes when you meet people who've been very involved in the charismatic renewal, that they tend to think that if they don't speak in tongues, there's something wrong with their spiritual life. Well, God doesn't give people the gift of tongues for them to be personally holy. It's not an expression of personal holiness. Living the gospel life, being generous to others, living a virtuous life is. The same is true of the gift of prophecy. Uh, there's a text in St. Augustine, one of the principal um, examples of prophecy in the Old Testament, is that the charism of infallibility was given to the high priest as the predecessor of the pope, the first and primary head of the church. And when Caiaphas said that it's expedient for one man to die for the nation, he was exercising the gift of prophecy, St. John says this, I think, as the high priest that year. But he did so from a wicked intention. In other words, it's possible to exercise charismatic gifts without being personally in the state of grace. Bishop Sheen used to say that people think he's in grace because he preaches great sermons. Preaching is another charism. And he used to say, if I'm not in grace before I get up there, I'm not going to be in grace when I sit down. I have to be before and after, personally. So, it's necessary to remember that sanctifying grace is what holiness is all about. Charismatic grace is given by God to the church when He wishes to give it for the sake of the upbuilding of others in charity. And you can see this by the famous text of St. Paul, 1 Corinthians, where he enumerates the charisms, and then he says, 
But if I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, those are charismatic graces, but have not charity, I'm a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. In other words, it's possible for God to move you because God's never stymied in his gifts by the weakness of his instruments to help bring about the conversion of the church and you get lost yourself. Just like the priest can consecrate at mass even if he's in the state of mortal sin. It may benefit the whole congregation, but it doesn't benefit him personally unless he personally orients himself to sanctifying grace. So, applying what I've been saying in the Catechism then, the Catechism says, our justification comes from the grace of God. Grace is favor, a free and undeserved help that God gives us to respond to his call to become children of God, adoptive sons, partakers of divine nature, and eternal life. Grace is a participation in the very life of God himself. From God's point of view, grace is uncreated. From our point of view, it's created because we receive it, and whatever is received is received according to the mode of the receiver. This vocation to eternal life is supernatural, 1998. It depends entirely upon God's gracious initiative, for he alone can reveal and give himself. It surpasses the power of the human intellect and will as that of every other creature. Nobody can give themselves grace. In 2000, then, we have grace defined and distinguished from actual grace. Sanctifying grace is an habitual gift, it's a quality, a stable and supernatural disposition that perfects the soul itself, it's right in the essence of our soul, it's not the same as the virtues, to enable it to live with God and to act by His love. Habitual grace, that's the same as sanctifying grace, the permanent disposition to live and act in keeping with God's call is distinguished from actual graces which refer to God's interventions, whether at the beginning of conversion or in the course of the work of sanctification. And then concerning the preparation for grace, the preparation for the reception of grace is already a work of grace. It's already a work of actual grace. This latter is needed to arouse and sustain our collaboration in justification through faith and in sanctification through charity. God brings to completion in us what he has begun, since he who completes his work by cooperating with our will began by working so that we might fulfill it. In other words, God begins to act in us, then he inspires and encourages us to do our part in cooperating with what he does. God's initiative, 2002, demands man's free response. For God has created man in his image by conferring on him along with freedom the power to know and love him. The soul only enters freely, therefore, into the communion of love. Now, why is that? Why can't God force us to have grace? Well, because God never acts anything against its nature. And it's a part of our nature to freely come where we are led. So though God's actions are without, in a way, our actions as the power which results from grace, God never acts in us against our consent. You may have often wondered why there's a famous parable in Scripture. Remember the man who was given the talent and the landowner went away and left him with the talents, the three men. And one man invested and made more. The other man invested and made more. But the man with the one talent hid the talent. He said, I knew you were a hard man who reaped where you did not sow and gathered where you did not scatter. And so I was afraid and I buried your money. And the vociferous reaction of the landowner to this. Well, many people don't understand this because they think they're dealing with earthly money. What they're actually dealing with is the gift of grace which is given to us by God. If God gives us a gift, he expects us to respond by our consent. The fact that the person who received the gift did not respond shows that he holds the giver in contempt. And then the Catechism distinguishes sanctifying grace from the charisms. 
Grace is first and foremost the gift of the Holy Spirit who justifies and sanctifies us. But grace also includes the gifts that the Spirit grants us to associate us with His work, to enable us to collaborate in the salvation of others and in the growth of the body of Christ, the Church. There are sacramental graces, which we haven't really treated here because they're something which we'll talk about a little later. There are furthermore special graces also called charisms after the Greek term used by St. Paul in meaning favor, gratuitous gift, or benefit. Whatever their character, sometimes they're extraordinary, such as the gifts of miracles or of tongues, charisms ordered toward sanctifying grace, and are intended for the common good of the church. They are at the service of charity, which builds up the church. So, we need this qualitative change in us, in the very essence of our souls, which elevates us to participate directly in divine life itself, in order for us to truly pursue our ultimate end. This elevation makes us pleasing to God. It makes us whole. It makes us integral. It justifies us. Without this elevation, it is not possible for us to arrive at what our end is by nature. And this elevation is the direct fruit of the divine love, who calls us to know him, as the known in the knower, and to love him as the loved in the lover. God himself has given us the great glory of being associated with his work, and we must allow him to work in us. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your divine love. Send forth your spirit, and they shall be created, and through sanctifying grace, you shall renew the face of the earth. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.